Rewind it back to the days of chillaxing on the beach and all-day fun with Spring Break on DraftKings Casino. Play exclusive games like Fan Fave Rocket. The excitement is endless, the vibes are right, and the cash prizes could be huge. New players, start playing with just 5 bucks and get 100 back instantly in casino credits. Download the app and use code COLLEGEDRAFT to book your one-way ticket to fun with DraftKings Casino. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Pour yourself a cold one. They strike them, huh? And listen to Russ Tucker break down the top college prospects on another tasty edition of The College Draft. Yeah, it is daddy soda time here on The College Draft, and this will be our normal day in the offseason a Monday so that you guys are ready to rock and roll all week with your pre-draft content. We are presented by BetOnline.ag. They are your online sportsbook experts. Just use the promo code PODCAST1 if you please for a 50% welcome bonus. He is Matt Waldman. Absolutely, Matt, I'm still basking in the glow of last week's episode looking ahead to the Super Bowl and crazy excited to see what our lessons were from a scouting perspective from yesterday's Super Bowl 54. You can check out Matt on Twitter at Matt Waldman. I am at Ross Tucker NFL on Twitter. You also can check out Matt at MattWaldmanRSP.com. He's got the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, which is a must-have for your pre-draft season, your draft coverage season. MattWaldmanRSP.com. And today, we're going to look at the game last night and what scouting lessons can be gleaned from the game. So last week, we looked at what scouting lessons can be gleaned from the success that certain players are having for the Super Bowl teams. Now we'll actually look at the success of the Super Bowl teams themselves in the game itself from yesterday, which is very, very cool. Speaking of cool, I've said it before, Bri and Matt, I'll say it again. My front page story.com is the best Valentine's Day gift ever. Being able to say, to your significant other, hey, babe, I, I want to do something really special for you this year. So I had a story written about you for 50 bucks. Are you kidding me? Myfrontpagestory.com. It's incredible, just like this podcast is about to be. Matt, I want to start with the quarterbacks because I do think that's obviously the most important position and what an interesting aspect of the game 
that it felt like Garoppolo played pretty well for the most part the first 52 minutes. Felt like Mahomes played maybe his worst game ever for the first 52 minutes. And then it totally flipped the last eight minutes for each. What what are the lessons that we take from that, maybe starting with Mahomes? Yeah, I mean, starting with Mahomes, it's interesting because, you know, aesthetically the way we look at a quarterback in terms of, you know, how pinpoint accurate he was and, you know, you would say that he had a pretty bad-looking game. But I think the more you look into how the 49ers' defense forced Mahomes off his game and then how he adjusted throughout the game as a result of that really tells you a lot more about good quarterback play than how pretty they looked, you know. And and to me, what it means is that, you know, Mahomes has always had really quick feet to set and hit short seams or to be able to hit the the quick screen game. And, you know, people would often talk about his footwork as an issue. But, you know, as Bill Walsh would value footwork, he talked about how smooth and how quick they are to set into a position. And Mahomes, when he can set his footwork where it's dictated by how he wants to do it, even if it's not, you know, picture perfect looking, he's going to get the ball out accurately. And pressure early on was forcing Mahomes to rush a lot of his targets because, you know, the combination of Armstead and Buckner and D Ford, they all were able to get, um, you know, separation from Wisniewski and Tardif Duvernay and Schwartz. And there were big time mismatches up front um, with those defensive tackles and defensive ends that forced Mahomes to kind of play off balance. But to Mahomes' credit, he really did a great job of countering. And part of that was Andy Reid and, the, and Eric Bieniemy being able to move the pocket with some designed movement earlier to where, you know, he wasn't in, in that, you know, straightforward traditional pocket and kind of moving outside. But a lot of that was also done on his own where he would drop straight back and then preemptively move a little bit outside the pocket. So that he was making throws where he was already extending some time and not getting himself into trouble where he had to react off platform, but to where he could dictate the type of off platform throws that he could make with comfort, you know, at a comfortable level. And so as a result, he was making better reads and bigger plays as time went on in the game. And then he was, they were setting up plays where he could anticipate open zones. So even if the passes weren't pinpoint throughout the game, you know, he was able to anticipate some of the contact that was heading his way. He'd find holes in the defense to walk-ins, and then despite heavy pressure from Bosa, he was able to make a big-time throw where he anticipated where the, you know, where the fade route was going to be going, or in the fourth quarter to Hill, where there was a post-corner route where Mahomes really anticipated where um, the the hole would be, and he put just enough air under the ball that he'll, once he made his turn, you know, he was fast enough that he could end up just waiting on that throw, but he beat the cornerback with a little move to the post. So these throws weren't pinpoint accurate, but they were thrown where they, they were thrown where they needed to be. And it was because home, Mahomes did such a good job of beginning to anticipate that his line wasn't going to be able to hold up for him to stay in the pocket and he had to find a solution for that. So the solution wasn't pretty, but the results got there. And so then on top of that, because he could run, and you saw his willingness to run in this game more than what we've seen other than like the, the previous in the um, championship game, the AFC championship game, 
his willingness to run really shouldn't be underestimated because he made some key plays and showed a lot of determination to get the extra yard or two to keep drives alive. And so I think that while it wasn't a good looking game for him and statistically it was one of his worst games, when it cut, when you come down to how the story unfolded and what he needed to do, do to win, I thought it was an excellent performance in terms of how you look at grit and adjustments and what you need a quarterback to do to be able to make a difference. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, people talk about the clutch gene and rising to the occasion. You know, I think – if you look at it, I believe I might be wrong, but Jimmy Garoppolo did a lot of winning when he was at East Illinois. Patrick Mahomes didn't do a lot of winning at Texas Tech. So I feel like from a scouting perspective, you know, I, I wonder if those are things you can really notice about clutch and being a winner and all those things, or if it's more from just the raw talent because Patrick Mahomes is not really a winner in college, and he's been an incredible winner in the NFL so far. Yeah, I think that's a terrific point, Ross, because I think it's it ultimately comes down to behaviors, and it is a team sport, and you have to have the players around you that you can put your teammates in position to make winning plays, but you can't will them to make the play ultimately. You, you know, it's the whole you can lead a, a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. It's the same kind of thing. So when you look at Mahomes, his ability to to really make turn difficult situations into positive um, situations where his teammates can make plays is is really I think that's what we have to learn from quarterback play is that that clutch gene or that winning gene isn't about the quarterback wins or about production. It's about putting their other players in position to where they can make a play and with reason, you know, and I think that he's able to do that. Whereas what you look at Garoppolo, you know, he, he did play a statistically sound game. And, and I think that he's a guy that if you, I think a lot of people knew this about him is that if you give him time in the pocket and you give him a nice offense where he can execute, in terms of, you know, he has a slick play action game, very smooth drops. He can get rid of the ball fast. When you give him time, he can be pinpoint accurate, even in the middle of the field in traffic. But one of the things that always kind of concerned me about him, and, and I've been waiting for a long time to see this and haven't really been sure, is that when I scouted him at Eastern Illinois, a, a personnel exec even asked me about this because I'd written about him and for an AFC team. And he asked, they were thinking about drafting him because they were really impressed with him at the Senior Bowl. And they saw me talking about him because he, he has this behavior that when pressure, he feels pressure, whether he sees a flash of it or it's coming close to him, he has a chance, he has an, um, I would say, a tendency to kind of turtle. And what I mean by that is that he's a guy that will kind of shrink away from the contact and certainly quarterbacks such a tough position and there are there are very few men on the planet who can handle knowing that someone's coming at them who's 300 pounds or coming at high velocity to hit you over and over and over again so i'm not questioning the guy's courage he has courage he'll take punishment but he anticipates it to the extent that it's kind of one of those things that you either have that ability to be able to keep your eyes open and not blink per se in the face of pressure 
And then you have the time where you are already anticipating, you know, someone closing the window on your hand or slamming the door in your face. And he kind of has that issue where even when he makes good throws, there's a really good throw that he delivered to um, Jeffrey Wilson, you know, where Wilson ran that angle route up the seam and he was backing away from the pressure and delivered the ball well. And he needed to do that. And there's times that he could get away with that. But then there's times where, you know, late in the game, you see where he took a, a massive hit and threw a ball that was really inaccurate on fourth down. Um, and it was one of those plays that even in the replay, you could see that about a foot away before the defender even hit him and he was still had the ball in his hand and was delivering his release. He, you could see him literally wince and shut his eyes before the ball even came out of his hand before the defender even hit him. And it's, it's just indicative of the behavior that some guys, you know, when the pressure's there, they can step in and deliver that ball and they're not trying to protect themselves. And it's a, it's a split second kind of instinctive reaction. And with Garoppolo, he never really quite had that at Eastern Illinois. I wondered if it was something that I just saw at certain points in a game or whether it was just something that he would grow out of, or it was just a, you know, it was a type of thing that wasn't problematic or, or a, habitual but i think it's habitual with him and it's the type of thing that if you protect him he can look great but in those specific situations that may separate you from you know winning a super bowl and being able to be great in the fourth quarter in those types of situations you know he didn't have that and i think that this was a game that was close enough that the smallest things made a difference and i think his play kind of showed that you know, he was someone that more often than not, he, he either wasn't accurate in those scenarios because he was reacting too early or when that when it was coming at him, he couldn't finish the play. What about uh, Chris Jones and the Chiefs defense in this game? And if there's anything that could be learned there? I mean, you know, people are posting on social media different plays and – yeah, I don't know if we give guys enough credit for getting hands on balls. Chris Jones, even when he was doubled at times, he got his hand on a couple big balls that were huge plays in the game. Yeah, and what's awesome about that with Chris Jones is we have to remember that the strength of his game is penetrating and getting pressure into the pocket and being really aggressive, quick twitch, being able to you know disrupt with pressure. So I think the 49ers were planning, were, you know, really betting on that, especially with the way that they run such a fat, uh, an awesome play action game. And early on, they were able to do a lot with their, with their misdirection offense to really force the, the chart, the, the chiefs defense to be over aggressive. But as the game wore on, you started to see, even in the second series, when they would try to throw some of these um, run some of these plays to the outside, whether it was a jet sweep or it was a, a wide receiver screen, and they were trying to target Debo Samuels. You started to see the Chiefs' defense, especially the line and Chris Jones in particular, be able to play back and not get too aggressive and let the keep the play in front of them and wait to see what was going to happen and then react. And they were starting to hold those plays to shorter gains than what they did in the first series. And so that I think also extends to later in the game when they were trying to apply pressure. And when he saw that he wasn't getting pressure right away, he took his eyes off of the task of trying to, you know, earn that pressure 
and keep an eye on Garoppolo and see what Garoppolo was doing. And he had three tip passes within what the final two drives of that game. Um, so the patience to be able to understand what his tendency is that it wasn't working, but what else he could do. And then the, the, the chiefs defense in general, being able to understand that maybe with certain types of plays, we need to be a little more patient and let the play develop in front of us and then react rather than attack. And they did that and they had enough success to keep this game close early on and then be able to make a difference in the fourth quarter. You know, I thought it was interesting, Matt, you know, looking at your notes and you thought that uh, Travis Kelsey was arguably the hidden MVP, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, because when you think about, you know, we could talk about, you know, scheme and there are a lot of people out there in the NFL analysis community who do a great job of talking about the X's and O's in the scheme. Um, I'm ultimately focused so much on players and what they can do. And I'm a big believer that it's the player, you know, certainly the scheme is a, is an important part of what bringing out the best in a player or bringing out the worst in your opponent, but ultimately players win games. And, and I'm a believer that when you look at what he did, in the, in the scheme with the 49ers, they were counting on their defense with Bosa and Armstead and Buckner and Sheldon Day to really just overpower this Chiefs offensive line. And it looked like that was going to happen. But one of the things that the Chiefs were able to do and what they game planned is they were going to double team the two defensive tackles on the 49ers. And the way they got away with doing that was that they used Travis Kelsey as a lineback blocker to work from one side of the line to the opposite side and stop players like Nick Bosa from pursuing down the line, which allowed them to double team and not have Bosa make them pay for it so that they could get their running backs to have pivotal gains in, you know, um, short down and distance situations, as well as some early down runs. Um, so there's that. And then even like the, the play that they were talking about where they did that nice shift that was that I believe that the a CBS analyst talked about where Eric Bieniemy had told him that, you know, it was like from a play from Michigan in 1940 Rose Bowl or something, where they basically shifted the, the, um, the backfield and then they ran off to the left side. And Kelsey really did a great job, even in that situation, to be able to get a push on the, on the running back to get him inside the one and nearly helped him score on that particular play. But it was more than just the running game and being able to, help out as a lineback blocker. It's the fact that you can line him up, him, him up on one side and command the attention of, of a cornerback and be able to get a vertical stretch where what you're doing is you got two, um, you, you know, two offensive players who are basically forcing one or two defenders into a, should I cover high or cover low? Should I help out high or low? And they don't, and they have to play this guessing game. And usually if you give the quarterback just enough time, the offense is always going to win by that design. And Kelsey's so compelling as a deeper option in that vertical stretch that he's going to allow players to come open like the running back. And so you'd see, that he was able to get with this vertical stretch, um, leaving Kelsey, you know, on a play where what they the linebacker ended up covering the running back low, and Kelsey was quick enough to beat the cornerback Mosley for a, a quick hitting play. And they needed those quick hitting plays early against that that pressure that the 49ers, 49ers gave. And then later in the game, they used a high low again with Williams and Kelsey 
And this time it was in the red zone and they used play action and the 49ers just let Kelsey get right behind him. And it was an easy, basically a play action, you know, boot for a touchdown that brought them, you know, back into this game. And then because Kel and Kelsey's so compelling because like George Kittle, he's one of the best at being able to transition after the catch. I mean, when you can catch the ball and just turn directly upfield and you already have separation on the guy who's covering you tight, you're a very dangerous player as a receiver, much less a big tight end. So those things I think were really important to, to note in terms of how he helped the game plan as a receiver in terms of just the routes that he ran and the threat that he was. So what he could do after the catch, in addition to what he did as a blocker. And so in any, every phase of the game, he had an integral part of that that helped his teammates win that you may not look at in the stat sheet, but I thought he was an unsung MVP because of that. Speaking of unsung, you listed a couple other players that I noticed one thing by Anthony Sherman. I did not really notice anything by Byron Pringle, but you wanted to talk about a couple of unsung players, Byron Pringle, uh, the wide receiver for the Chiefs, and Anthony Sherman, the fullback. Yeah, because, you know, we talked about Byron Pringle last week and kind of lessons about scouting in terms of guys who, you know, the Chiefs were willing to roll the dice on. And one of the things that they did with Pringle is he had, you know, he had a criminal record, he had a felony record. But, um, you know, Bill Snyder, the great coach at Kansas State, you know, he was a guy that was willing to take a chance on Pringle and Bill, you know, Bill Snyder is so respected in a lot of ways. And the Chiefs did their their um, their research on Pringle, saw that this was a guy who had matured, and they felt like he had abilities as a return specialist as well as a receiver. And he certainly made an impact, uh, you know, in spot contributions on the offense. But as a coverage guy, his ability, you know, late in that game to be able to stop Richie James at the 15 and force a long field. And he made some good plays throughout in kick coverage so that he forced that team to have to drive the length of the field. And as we saw, you know, the, the 49ers kind of lost their patience with the run game, maybe too early in the fourth quarter. And, and you saw, you heard Tyron Matthew, or at least Tyron Matthew had told some reporters after the game, they were relieved that Mike Shanahan went away from the run as early as they did because the, the run was dominating the Chiefs and they're not built to stop that as we talked last week about their defense. They're more about stopping the pass with pressure and then their coverage. And so Pringle's ability to, to force a longer field with his coverage was a big deal. And then at the end of the game, to seal that game, you know, you could see that Anthony Sherman, who I think this was – I haven't gone back for a second look at this game yet, but I believe it was his first time – in the game, or at least his first time really lead blocking in the game. And he sealed the edge for Damian Williams for that long run. And the guy who was on the outside blocking the cornerback was Byron Pringle. So Pringle had Pringle and Sherman worked together to get an inside and outside seal on that long run late in the game. And then also early, just a little earlier than that, it was Pringle who really forced that long field. So having those guys who you can bring into a game. It's tough when you're not into the flow of the game. So when you have guys who are late round picks who get put in the game in the fourth quarter and say, here, we're going to run to your side or here, you need to make a stop. And you're on the bench like that. That's extremely valuable. And that is a credit to 
you know, the scouting and evaluation process and, and picking guys who can turn it on and be focused and be in the moment and make the plays they need to without having to get warmed up and in the flow. Yeah, and if you think about it, just from a roster construction standpoint, to have guys like Chad Henney and LaShawn McCoy inactive for the game yeah. just shows you, you know, the depth that they had. You know, if they lost uh, Matt Moore or Mahomes or if they lost a running back, they had guys that were, you know, very ready to go that have had outstanding careers, obviously. Uh, one thing I think is going to be interesting to watch is with the teams having success with fullbacks, like check was awesome last night. The problem is college football is just not really making fullbacks. They're, they're just not coming out. So I think more teams are going to want to use fullbacks seeing the success that they've had, but how do you use them and get one if there aren't any really coming out? They're not making them. So I think that's going to be really interesting. I mean, if Juszczyk had scored a touchdown, I think he would have been uh, perhaps the player of the game, uh, MVP, if he had scored that second touchdown and the Niners held on the win. I mean, it would have been unbelievable. Ivy League fullback, MVP of the Super Bowl. I mean, what is this, 1928? (laughs) I mean, it's unbelievable. (laughs) Speaking of unbelievable, you can all – Go to betonline.ag, use the promo code PODCAST1 for the 50% welcome bonus. Believe it or not, you can start placing wagers on next season, start placing wagers on the XFL, start placing wagers on the NFL draft, which is what we talk about here on the College Draft Podcast. Just go to betonline.ag. Use the promo code PODCAST1. I mentioned Matt Waldman, RSP.com earlier. We are year-round, and starting next week, we're going to start to dive into some pre-combine thoughts. We're going to start to get some guests on. Our old buddy, Fran Duffy, will join us over the next few weeks. We'll do a positional breakdown of the top guys heading in to the 2020 NFL Draft, which will be here before you know it. For Matt Waldman, I'm Ross Tucker. Hope you guys enjoyed this show as much as we did. Hopefully you enjoyed the season as much as we did. It is now officially draft time and the College Draft Podcast and your team are on the clock. The keg is kicked and we're all tapped out. Thanks for listening to the College Draft Podcast. Make sure to also subscribe to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and the Business of Sports. All available at Apple Podcasts, RossTucker.com, or wherever podcasts can be found.